Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. When the people said, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. If we were filming a, a mini-series called, say, the, the Rise and Fall of the First King of Israel, we'd probably begin tonight with a couple of flashback scenes uh, from past episodes. Uh, we'd show the scene where young Saul is secretly anointed king by old Samuel. Then we might show the scene where uh, the young farmer is, is overwhelmed by his calling and is hiding in the baggage when he's supposed to be making a a speech. And maybe we'd end the previews with a, with a nice sunset shot of the tall farmer, timid farmer, riding back to his farm in Gilgal. Well, tonight's episode opens with Saul back home in Gibeah, and he's walking behind his oxen on the farm. Evidently, being the first king of Israel does not come with a lot of perks at this point. <laughs> Um, because he's still walking behind an oxen. And he comes home at the end of the day, and he, he looks around, and he sees that everyone in the village is, is crying, and he wants to know what happened. And the villagers immediately tell him this horrifying story of brutal oppression. And if, if we can go ahead and put the first map up there, we'll get a little bearings of, of what's going on. As, as you know, uh, or p- perhaps you know, when uh, the people of Israel went into the Promised Land, there are 12 tribes, and they settle it according to the tribes. We couldn't fit the whole map on one screen, but uh, a bunch of them settled in the north, a bunch of them settled in the south. And one of the things that you'll notice is you can see a little thin blue line north of the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River. And a couple of tribes, Gad and Reuben particularly, uh, when it came time to cross over, said, no, we're not going to do that. We want to camp here. And that created quite a bit of tension. Um, the village that has been oppressed is uh, up in Gad. And if we can go to the second uh, map now, give, give us kind of a close-up. There's mountains on the east and the west of the Jordan River Valley. This little village is Jabesh Gilead up in the north. And they were conquered by uh, the people of Ammon. Uh, They were at war because they both felt that they had rights to the land on the east bank. Does that sound familiar, perhaps? Uh, Now, the the Ammonites go against Jabesh-Gilead and and conquer them. Now, it was normal in those days when you were conquered by a foreign state to become a vassal state. And what that meant was... All right, you win, you're in charge, we'll sign a treaty with you, 
and uh, you'll now be our king, and we'll have certain rights and expectations, and you kind of go on with your business. That was the normal way it went. But not this time. Uh, Nahash uh, wants to do more. He wants to torture them and humiliate them. And so he says, uh, I want to gouge out all of your eyes. That's what I'm asking for, which ultimately would mean infection and, and death and, and, and essentially the annihilation of, of the people. Now, why does he do that? Well, we don't know for sure, but in 1952, archaeologists were digging in the, the fourth Qumran cave where they found the scrolls, and they found an ancient scroll that talked about this battle. And one of the things that the scroll said was that uh, the king of Amen had been going all over the east bank and gouging out the eyes of all the, the, the Jews. And the, those that escaped fled to Jabesh Gilead. And so the king of Ammon is furious with Jabesh Gilead for protecting refugees. Okay? So that's a little bit of the background. And the, the citizens of Jabesh are so powerless to save themselves that all they can say is, well, give us seven days and see if somebody can save us, and if not, do what you want. So some of the messengers ride to the village of Gibeah, which would be about a 30-mile ride. You can see it down there on the south. That is where um, Saul lived. And report this to uh, Saul. And he hears about the injustice. And in a moment, we're going to see that this young, timid farmer is, is moved to act uh, when he hears the story of the oppression of his people. And we're going to talk about that tonight. But before we look at his response, I just want to make a simple observation, and that is that the first step towards responding to oppression, towards responding to injustice, is hearing about it. If Saul had not heard this report, he would have kept farming. And one of the things that happens again and again in the Scripture is God calls his people to join him in the work of seeking justice in the world. God himself is just. Psalm 33, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The book of Exodus is sort of a paradigm of how God works in the world, which we're studying on Monday nights, if you're looking for a good Bible study. God hears the cry of the oppressed slaves in Egypt. He cares. He delivers them from their oppression. And then the idea is that God's people, having tasted God's rescuing justice, are now to spread that justice through the world. The, the Hebrew word mishpat means to set things in order, to return things to shalom, to set the world to rights. And so God's people are called to be about the work of justice. Uh, Proverbs 31, Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and for the rights of all who are destitute. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Micah 6, 8. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? So the God of justice creates a people of justice who join him in working for justice on the earth. We're invited to join him in this great adventure of setting the world to right. Now, where does the adventure begin? Where do you get involved with this? Well, it starts when you hear a messenger. It starts when you become aware of a particular need, a particular injustice that breaks your heart. 
And we'll all have a different role to play in this, in this adventure once we, we hear that word. Some of us will spend our whole lives doing it vocationally. Others will, will pray for it. Others will paint, paint paintings and write books that draw attention to it. But all of us in one way or another are responsible to join God in this great adventure of setting the worlds to rights. And, and your role begins when you hear a report that breaks your heart. I was driving the Park Ridge kids to swim practice Tuesday afternoon, and uh, the conversation took a, an odd turn. They, they started talking about shootings, and Kamani said that his cousin had been shot four times in the head at Townview, and so he felt Townview was the worst, and then it got into a debate of whether or which project was the worst. And then the conversation turned to gangs uh, about the Bloods and the Crips, and one of the kids lived across Magnolia, and evidently the Bloods are more over there and the Crips are more on the other side. And, and then little Jumantre says that, uh, kind of proudly, he says, well, I belong to the young Crips. And I said, the young Crips? He said, yeah, there's, there's three of us, and uh, we, we're part of it. And he sees the shock look on my face, and I, I give this little sermon about the dangers of gangs, and I could tell. He said, oh, he said, oh no, the, the young Crips are, are good. Now, this is the cutest little guy in the world, and, and we all know where, where that's going to take him. I wasn't having these conversations a few years ago with anybody, and, and so I wasn't involved in the lives of those kids. But in my little piece of the story, hearing stories like that clarifies my own calling to uh, care for at-risk urban kids. So what stories bother you? What, what messenger has bothered you lately? Scott Branson spent a week in Vancouver on a mission trip, and he saw urban poverty in a way he'd never seen it, and it changed his whole life. It's why he's uh, restoring houses in the inner city now. Uh, Jane Bullington became just broken over the plight of the unborn. It just occurred to her that uh, unborn children uh, were the, the most silent uh, the, the hardest to see a vulnerable member of our society and that they were uncared for and she's given her life to fight for them. Uh, Janie and Johnny Tolliver, some 15 years ago, were watching a, a choir with some kids from uh, the Far East and fell in love with one of the little boys and has spent the, next, the last 15 years flying over there and paying for his schooling and walking with him. It begins with, uh, with a story. Now, one of the things that I think is, is, is challenging for us is a lot of times we're not exposed to those kind of stories. Um, I heard it described like this by the president of World Vision, and I can't remember his name right now, but he said there's two kingdoms in the world. There's a tragic kingdom and a magic kingdom. And, and he said, he, he was talking to middle-class white people, and he said, you all live in the magic kingdom. Uh, you, you live in the kingdom where you have your needs and, and you've got resources and places to go and people to talk to, but there's a lot of people in the world that live in the tragic kingdom uh, th- th- where, it's, where your cousin gets shot in the face four times and uh, gangs are the only way out and, and the rest of the world plays itself out in a lot of different ways. And what strikes me about that is most of the media in American culture is, is about the magic kingdom. And we don't have much exposure to media about the tragic kingdom. And so I bet most of 
Some of you may know more about Justin Bieber's arrest for drag racing than anything that's gone on in our city this weekend. And it's not necessarily your fault because it's harder to find out about the, the, the shooting or the hungry person. or It's a lot easier to find out about Justin Bieber. And so we're just consumed with this information that frankly is, is worthless. Because we can't do any, we don't, we're, Justin isn't my people. Uh, I, I can't help him. And I know that, that a lot of us don't read the paper anymore. We don't read the local papers anymore, and we don't watch the local news anymore because it's, it's boring. I mean, why do you want to read about frustrated school teachers when you can read a tweet about a celebrity at a restaurant in L.A.? I mean, it's boring. Local news is not sexy. But one of the things that I'd, I'd encourage us as a congregation to do is, is to expose yourself to what's going on in your own community your own neighborhood, your own school, your own block. Expose yourself and tone down the noise about uh, what Susie Q's wearing at the Oscars as if it matters and figure out what's happening in your own community. That's where a call like this is born. Well, I think my, my favorite verse in this whole story is, And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. In the Hebrew, it's leaped. <laughs> I love that picture. The, the Spirit of God leaped upon Saul when he heard this, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, anger is not always a bad thing. I think Christians sometimes think that anger is always bad. There, There is a time to be angry. We should feel our emotions. Uh, There are reasons to be angry in this world. But anger alone won't help you very much sustain a response to injustice. It will make you cynical. It will make you mad. It will make you hateful. It might make you even fly a plane into a building. But it won't help you work for the kingdom of God. What's different here is that Saul is more than angry. Saul is, I don't know, in the Old Covenant if you'd say filled with the Spirit, because I'm not sure that quite happened yet. Saul is leapt upon (laughs) by the Holy Spirit. Saul is mugged by the, the Holy Spirit. And somehow in that spiritual mugging, the anger turns into a calling. And that's what has to happen. You see, what I'm trying to lay out here tonight is a cycle of response to injustice. It, it, it begins with a message, with a report, and it moves towards uh, 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 the Holy Spirit falling upon your anger and, and giving you a calling. One, one writer said this, he said, Saul is responsive to the need with a resolve to act against oppression. It's the work of the Spirit that moves Saul to social outrage and resentment. As with Moses, the power of God and anger and oppression together create a situation of confrontation, conflict, and an alternate social possibility. So the work of the Spirit is not always just to make us meek and mild and peaceful and quiet. Sometimes it can stir a righteous anger to confront an injustice. So what does Paul do? Saul, I've been doing that for four weeks. I'm going to keep doing that. Saul... 
uh, takes an oxen, cuts him up, sends it throughout all the territory of Israel, and says, join me in this. Now, you know, kind of a, a, a brutal image, not necessarily the story you want to read to your kids before they go to bed. Uh, but this is a pre-literate, pre-modern culture. Saul had some way, he had to find some way to get the word out. He couldn't put a speech on YouTube. He couldn't talk about the revolution on Facebook. And so this is just what you did, a very graphic, symbolic picture. And essentially what he's saying is, look guys, this tribe over there is part of us. And if we don't all come together and support this vulnerable member of our community, we all could go down. We all could be torn up. And I think he's, he's anticipating a powerful principle of, of social justice, which is that, that, that we're all going to be vulnerable someday, and that, that the weakest members of the community need to be cared for, whether they're unborn children or the elderly, or I guess we could even transfer this to things like the environment. And, and as I read this today, I thought about that great quote from the German pastor Martin Niemöller, it's on the wall of the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And he, he wrote it when he was in, um, I believe, Dachau. He said, first they came for the socialist, and I didn't speak out, because I wasn't a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist, and I didn't speak out, because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out, because I wasn't a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Well, then the dread of the Lord, he says, falls upon the people and they come out as one man. And the divided children of Israel unite around a common purpose, overcoming the oppression of their neighbors across the river. And then they all muster, if we could go back to that other slide, uh, they muster at uh, uh, basic, if we could down below, uh, or, or rather, just up, up on the left side, it's about 10 miles on the other side of the mountain. Saul calls them all together again. They rally. And this is kind of interesting, too, because there's background here we won't go into, but many of the people in, on this side of the river hated their cousins on the other side of the river because they hadn't put their money where their mouth was and crossed over the river. So uh, the people in Jabesh, and by the way, if you want to have some interesting reading this week, go read the last three chapters of Judges, and it talks about this horrific civil war where Jabesh Gilead was against the, the people of Benjamin, and they didn't show up for a conference, and so they went and they killed all their husbands. I mean, it's just, there's bad blood all over the place. These people didn't like each other, is the point. But, when they rallied together around a cause, they were unified. And Saul marches them 10 miles um, from Basic over that hill country, which is very rugged terrain. They, uh, they cross the Jordan. And again, the Jordan's not super wide, but it's, it's wide enough. And they, they all march through the night over to Jabesh Gilead. Remember, these people are farmers. Uh, they're not used to this kind of thing. And in the morning, as the text says... God makes it clear to Saul that he's supposed to divide, divide them into three companies. And they surprise attack the Ammonites and they win the battle. Now what's happened here? Um, God has given him a strategy. 
for responding to the unjust injustice. And he's walked it out. He took a huge risk to try to do something about it. And you might find yourself tonight maybe somewhere in this story. Maybe, maybe you just can't get through the day without thinking about um, this hungry child that you know or this homeless person you pass by every day or, or a, a mountaintop or a stream that's polluted or a mentally ill person in your family um, the victims of sex trafficking in Haiti, uh, the widow with a heating bill, um, your gay neighbor, uh, your father who can't, the father who can't find work, or uh, the, the, the abandoned dog that's about to be put to death at the pound, or uh, the overweight friend who's died of diabetes, or the single mother at work, or the janitor at your gym, or your struggling son. I mean, Somebody's on your heart tonight, and you're wondering what to do. You need a strategy. And I think what we learn from this is that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and He'll work with your pain, He'll work with your frustration, He'll work with your anger, and He'll give you a strategy. He will show you how to cross the Jordan. Now, one of the th- there's a lot of things about the story that don't apply today. Uh, we're not kings, for one thing, leading a huge military. We're just normal. We're, we're the other people that you never read about in the story. And so most of us, when you, when you start to care, the Holy Spirit's not going to lead you to, to, to create an army. He's going to lead you to do something very small, very, very tiny, very insignificant that no one's ever going to write a history story about. And that's how you respond. You know, for me, again, just these small little bumps, I've not known what to do with these things over the years, but uh, at the end of that summer, unlike the last four or five summers, we felt like we, we couldn't just shut down the swim program. And a couple friends mentioned, hey, there's a new head coach at the Tennessee Aquatics. He has a real heart for social justice. And he's Marshall Goldman. Talk to him. Long story short, that led to uh, nine of our kids now are swimming year-round, thanks, thanks to the club. And the more I get into that, the more the Lord's saying, I want you to learn a little more about this community. So I asked a black pastor to mentor me, and I, I went to Emancipation Day, and I went to MLK Day, and I've started to listen to WJBE, uh, which is an African-American radio station, and I'm going to go to the NAACP meeting in a week or so. I'm just, I'm just following the Spirit, trying to understand this, my neighbor. And I don't know where it's going to go. What's it look like? for you. None of those things are the things that you write about. What small step is the Spirit putting on your heart tonight asking you to take? Now, before we leave this part of the story, let's not miss the the fact that it does eventually require movement and risk. They don't stay in Gibeah. And the Holy Spirit will eventually impress upon you to act. It may be by getting up early to pray. 
maybe something far riskier, but risk is involved in the life of faith. Risk is involved in trying to respond to oppression. Well, the story ends, they're victorious. We're not going to talk about the ethics of Old Testament war tonight. Um, They come back, they go to Gilgal, they have a great ceremony, the kingdom of God is renewed, and Saul is established as a king. And as I read that this week, I thought, you know, that's just a picture of what happens when the people of God open themselves up to the Spirit of God, and they respond in obedience, and they take risks, and they step out in faith, and they move towards what God is calling to move towards. The kingdom of God is renewed. The kingdom of God is advanced. I mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, this little project with the newspaper was, was somewhat troubled and Thankfully, it's, it's back online, and one of the things that they want to do now is little stories about different neighborhoods. And so in February, Megan Davis and I and a couple others are, are working on a piece on Mechanicsville and just what's happening there, the challenges that are there, and the great things that are happening. And my little part is to, to write a story about James Davis. And uh, James Davis is the pastor of uh, Eternal Life Harvest Center over on um, Western Avenue, and I've known him probably close to 25 years now. Uh, James is a remarkable community leader. He, he started a little church in a tire store and uh, built it into what it is today. He's gone to the White House to seek funding for his community. He he's mediates with gang leaders. He uh, launched job training programs and youth programs and programs for ex-felons and, and all of that. But he didn't start out that way. And, and I met with him this week to, to interview him and James started as a, as a drug dealer. Uh, James was known as Junebug then. And uh, Junebug launched his first club at 18. And it was so popular, he started another one called After Dark on University Avenue. Uh, he was about 20 then. He ran a, a huge gambling operation. He sold cocaine and dope. Uh, he grew very rich. Uh, drove around the neighborhood in uh, one of his seven cars. Um, He had many girlfriends, he said. Uh, He said he dressed like uh, a gangster and had gold chains that came all the way down his chest. And on each chain was a letter that ultimately spelled out Junebug. And one day, uh, Junebug was on the way to his club, and he stopped by his grandmother's house. And Grandma had a Pat Robertson 700 club on. And James sat down to to watch, and uh, Pat Robertson was explaining that even our best works are like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ, and that we needed a Savior. James says he was stunned that he thought he was a good guy because he gave money to the church in his neighborhood, and he bought the uh, cheerleaders at Knoxville College as their skirts. And so he thought he was was in. Well, the Holy Spirit kind of leapt on him from that TV show, says he got down on his knees and asked God to save him. And the following Sunday, he went to Mount Moriah Baptist Church. Uh, that was the church she was supporting. Uh, walked in and said, I'm Junebug, and I'm here to be saved. And he became a Christian. And then he says he went home that night, called all the people who sold dope for him, and told them to start booking gospel groups for the club. And they thought he'd gone nuts. Well, the defining moment came a few weeks later, James said. He said he had $20,000 worth of Coke in his girlfriend's refrigerator. 
And now that he was saved, he started to realize he didn't want to sell, sell drugs anymore, but, but that was a lot of money. So he told the Lord, you know, this will be my last sale, and uh, then we'll kind of move on. And the Lord said, no, I want you to flush it. And James said he uh, uh, argued with the Lord for, for several days, and then finally one night uh, went into the fridge, broke up all the Coke, and flushed it down the toilet. And then he said, when he flushed the last, uh, I don't know what you call these things, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> And don't shout out, that will kind of indict you, but what, what, whatever it is that you flush, that was not my vice in high school. Um, not wearing my seatbelt was about as radical I got. Um, he, he, he said, and this is when I thought of the story, he said when he flushed the last thing of Coke down the, the toilet, the Holy Spirit fell on him and he hit the floor and had what he called a baptism of the Holy Spirit and for the next year read the Bible nonstop. And he said, I was a vampire then. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I worked all night and I slept all day. And I did that for a year. I read the Bible all night and I slept all day. And then gradually he started working in a little ministry called Urban Community Vision with Chris Martin. And, uh, and eventually he started a church. And as I heard that story again, I'd heard it years ago, I just thought, you know, that is how God works. That's how God touches Communities. It's how he responds to injustice and oppression. God calls leaders. He calls people. He equips them with the Holy Spirit. He raises them up and sends them out. So let me end by asking you this. Where are you in this cycle tonight that we've looked at? Would you say you're just, you're just unaware of the suffering around you? Would you say that you are aware and that you're angry? Would you say that you're sensing a move of the Spirit? Would you say that you're discerning a strategy? Would you say that you've done that and now you're taking a risk and heading out over the mountains in the middle of the night? Would you say that you're enjoying the renewal of the kingdom? Where are you in that cycle? And what's God saying to you about your next move? Let's pray.